Welcome to episode 50 of the G2 on 5G. It's the latest inside scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 15 minutes, and it's brought to you by More Insights and Strategy. I'm Will Townsend, and joining me again this week is fellow analyst Angel Sag. But before we get started, 50 is a big thing for you and I, my friend. Um, this marks our first anniversary. It seems like we've been doing these a lot longer than that, huh? <laughs> Maybe a little bit. Just a little bit, but uh, one one year down and, and hopefully many more years to come. So let's jump into my first topic. This week, Qualcomm and Vodafone announced an open RAN set of blueprints intended to provide diversification for the supply chain and uh, vendor community. So what's the real impact of all this? So to go a little bit deeper into the announcement, and this broke today, and I was actually on, a, uh, on an analyst pre-briefing um, right when the press release was issued. But there are two reference designs that are being issued. There's one around massive MIMO um, radio unit platforms and the second around uh, distributed unit platforms. Now, these won't be available until um, the kind of the first, kind of into the first half of 2022. But I think they're significant. You know, you've got an operator um, partnering with a, an infrastructure provider that's, that's pretty strategic. And you know, one of the you know, couple of the challenges that I see with Open RAN, number one, it's the complexity, and it's integrating you know a, a new set of ecosystem partners into the fold, and uh, and so with reference designs and blueprints, that should help simplify and and more quickly onboard um, you know these these different ecosystem players. So that's a positive thing, and you know, from my perspective, given what Qualcomm has been doing, for example to improve the propagation of millimeter wave and that sort of thing. The other challenge with OpenRAN is that it's not optimized for performance. It's really optimized around CapEx and OpEx. And so I expect out of this um, relationship, and it should develop over time, that um, there should be some goodness from an, a performance enhancement perspective. So any, any insights on your part, Anshul? Yeah, I was actually part of that call as well. So I, I got the, the, the deep dive on it. and. Mm -hmm. What I found, found was interesting was, and this was something that I also agree with, is how much of a footprint can Open RAN have with already deployed 5G right. operators? We've talked about that, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that um, that's going to be a big challenge, but I believe that there are going to still be lots of opportunities for upgrades and mid-band that hasn't been deployed yet. So obviously yeah. it's a huge opportunity in the U.S., um, and I also think it's going to be a huge opportunity uh, in markets where they're not rolling out very aggressively or they can't afford to. Yeah. Um, so I think 5G rollouts might take a little bit more time than I think some people would expect. Um, but I think people are also underestimating the amount of new equipment uh, and new infrastructure needs to be in place for it to work properly and to be a standalone 5G network. So. Mm -hmm. I think there's going to be a longer tail on this than I think a lot of people are expecting. Um, but in the end, it will result in a much more robust, faster, more capable network than what we have today. I agree. And, you know, there are greenfield deployments going on with DISH in the U.S., you know, Rakuten in Japan is sort of the poster child for all of this and Reliance in India. And so definitely, you know, I see the applicability there. I did catch some news this week as well, you know, Telecom Italia is claiming that they're the first to deploy open RAN within Europe. 
Mm-hmm. And um, and certainly that that's well ahead of this relationship with, you know, between Vodafone and Qualcomm. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, I, you know, we've talked about that before, you know, most networks are already sort of in the throes of deployment. So open RAN, you know, we'll probably, you know, we'll definitely be, you know, you know, involved in proof of concepts and those sort of things, definitely employed in greenfield applications um, and deployments, but, you know, time will tell, but I think this is a step in the right direction. It really addresses, again, two of my biggest concerns with open RAN, just around the integration complexity and then, you know, kind of, you know, the performance angle, but uh, we'll both keep our uh, eyes and ears open here and report back as things develop. Let's move into your first topic this week, and you want to talk about open signal millimeter wave coverage findings. Yeah, so what's interesting about the open signal report was that they specifically went out and tested the average download speed on millimeter wave uh, by US carrier, and they also were testing average time connected to millimeter wave uh, 5G in the US by carrier as well. And they found that both AT&T and T-Mobile had speeds in the two, two to 300 megabits per second speed range, which is not great for millimeter wave. And mm-hmm. that Verizon had about 692. So Verizon's speed in their millimeter wave coverage is much better than AT&T and T-Mobile's, which I believe because um, Verizon's millimeter wave coverage and the bandwidth you get within their coverage is, is fairly decent. Um, from my personal testing with multiple millimeter wave devices, I found that you can actually get one to two gigabits per second pretty reliably as long as you're within coverage. And really, I think Verizon's model of dropping you off millimeter wave, if the signal is not good, may be a good reason why their speeds are so much better than AT&T and T-Mobile's. Um, AT&T and T-Mobile were also tied for an average time connected to millimeter wave at half a percent, mm-hmm. while Verizon almost doubled that at 0.8%, which is still less than a percent. Yeah. Um, and is kind of in line with the kind of coverage that Verizon has been saying that they do have with millimeter wave. But I, I think this report sparked a lot of unnecessary uh, uh, attacks on millimeter wave, um, primarily because I don't think people really understand why millimeter wave exists or what its use cases are. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a big problem for the industry, um, especially the Qualcomm's of the world, um, because they are a big proponent of millimeter wave. And if they can't convince the market that it matters, then OEMs are going to start dropping millimeter wave out of their phones, um, mm-hmm. which I think I think impacts Qualcomm quite a bit. Um, but ultimately, I believe millimeter wave does have a place and that it will be really beneficial, especially as the world starts to go back to normal and you start having full stadiums, concert venues, parks, and anywhere where you have people congregate in any kind of meaningful density. Um, mm-hmm. Even when you're not in that area, when this event, an event might be happening, just because that event is happening nearby, it can really put a lot of load on the cell network in ways that um, would be preventable with millimeter wave. Yeah, and um, you know we've we've spoken about this before as well, and we've talked about Verizon. I, I wonder if Verizon's you know invest you know recent invest, investments in mobile edge computing is enhancing you know the performance you know of their network. I you know you know time will tell. 
And, you know, I think we're doing a good job, at least on our podcast with our viewership, you know, trying to educate about millimeter wave. You know, we've talked about some of the conspiracy theories around the health concerns with 5G. Certainly millimeter wave is new with 5G. Um, we haven't had, you know, that, that high band spectrum in an LTE world. And, um, and so it's just, you know, the education needs to occur there. And, yeah. you know, I, I think Qualcomm is doing a good job and certainly not only, you know, you and I, but we have some other fellow analysts that, that also conduct, you know, 5G oriented podcasts that are trying to educate people around that as well. But it is, you know, it is a critical linchpin. It, it's part of an overall plan to provide, you know, that blend of coverage and performance. So, um, so again, um, we'll just continue beating the drum there and doing our best to educate folks. But let's move to my second topic this week. And actually, it's mobile edge computing is a great segue into it. Um, T-Mobile and Lumen Technologies announced uh, an edge infrastructure partnership. And um, you might argue that T-Mobile is a little bit late to the party with, with, with edge. Um, certainly Verizon, we were just talking about Verizon, they've been out in front, they've been investing heavily in that, and that makes sense given their focus on their millimeter wave deployment. And AT&T has been um, focused on it as well with, you know, with relationships with cloud providers and those sorts of folks. What I find interesting about uh, T-Mobile picking Lumen is their fiber footprint. And I'm just going to read some stats here. Um, Lumen has um, almost half a million global route miles of fiber. And almost 200,000 of those are connected, you know, to buildings which um, are connected to, you know, over 2,000 third-party data centers. And, and, you know, and they're working with, you know, all the big guys like AWS, um, you know, Azure and, and Google Cloud Platform. And, and so I, I sort of view this as it's a necessary step for T-Mobile. Um, they recognize as they build out their enterprise portfolio, that edge, you know, putting, you know, putting compute resources closer to the area of data creation is going to supercharge, you know, their, their 5G capabilities and, you know, and really support, you know, use cases like, you know, um, autonomy and factories and that sort of thing. So I felt like it was a necessary step. Um, I think also it sort of addresses, you know, the fiber um, element for them. Um, because when you when you when you talk to Verizon, they're always bragging about their fiber in infrastructure and AT&T to a lesser extent. So I think this this tie up um, satisfies two things. It gives them, you know, um, a great uh, fiber footprint and it gives them that, you know, that edge capability that they will need with respect to enterprise. So any other any other insights on your part there? No, I saw the announcement. I, I thought it was a good announcement for T-Mobile. Yeah. Um, I, I think it definitely kind of helps them build up their business use cases um, and improve their IoT um, capabilities, mm -hmm. which I think they pretty much inherited from Sprint. Um, yeah. So I think making it more robust uh, and working with a known partner like Lumen is, is a good um, big step. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Well, let's move to your second topic this week. And we're going to talk about Qualcomm again. And they announced earnings and they were pretty spectacular. Yeah. So uh, Qualcomm announced earnings and they pretty much crushed everything in terms of earnings. Um, they they had a, um, a really good quarter compared to last year. So to be fair, Q2 was kind of the um, 
the worst possible quarter. Yeah. You know, like they, they were, they were, uh, their, their earnings specifically were $1.90 per share uh, mm-hmm. compared to $1.67 expected. And they got $7.93 billion in revenue uh, over 7.62. So they, they crushed on both. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I, I think when I was looking at the numbers, it was like they were up like 200% on profitability yeah. compared to last year. Um, and just outlook is positive. Um, they raised their guidance on shipments. The so, yeah, yeah, so they, they, they actually increased their expectations for the full calendar year to 450 to 550 million devices. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they also increased the amount of 5G licensees to 130 from 120. Um, and they had now have a, it's not necessarily a 5G story, um, but they said that they now have a $9 billion automotive pipeline, which mm-hmm. is bigger than most other chip companies yeah. entirely. Okay. Um, so they have quite a bit going on. Um, you know, they have all different types of, um, you know, businesses that they, they have an IOT business, they have a home networking business, but really the focus for Qualcomm is 5G and 5G handsets. Um, and, you know, they're, 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 they're kind of firing on all cylinders and uh, they're, they're going to, for, for the foreseeable future, um, continue to move forward with mm-hmm. their, their market position, which they're mostly focusing on the high end from what it seems like during, I heard during the call. Right. And which is where the profitability is there as well. So, um, yeah, you know, yeah. And margin. Now you want to talk about some licensing agreements as well, right? Yeah, that was, that was the, uh, the 130 licensing agreements that they had signed. Uh, they added 10 more. So now they're up to 130, which is quite a few. Um, but overall they're, they're kind of just firing on all cylinders um, compared to about a year ago when things were a bit rough for them. Yeah. You know, and it was, you know, the market was soft for obvious reasons, but um, yeah, they continue to roll and uh, they're truly, uh, they're, they're one of the leaders driving the, whole, the entire yeah. IG ecosystem. And, and this was the call, the last call that their current CEO, uh, Steve Mollenkopf had had for, after working the company for 26 years. So this was kind of like the, uh, the handoff uh, from him to Cristiano Ramon, who's then, the new incoming CEO, who was previously president of the majority of the company already. Mm-hmm. So he's been the, the uh, CEO and waiting for the last few quarters as they announced the uh, transition. Yeah. So great, great timing for Mr. Ramon as he, uh, as he officially takes the reins. So let's move to my third and final topic this week. And uh, OneWeb is finally getting off the ground, no pun intended. <laughs> Um, I've spoken about OneWeb in the past. They were really leading the uh, the LEO, the Low Earth Orbit Satellite Space Race. Um, they had some tough times. Uh, they had to declare bankruptcy uh, just to reorganize. Um, Hughes took an interest in them for obvious reasons. And, and so this week, they announced the launch of some additional satellites, which brings the total number to 182 in orbit. They say they're on schedule to cover 50 degrees of latitude above, uh, above by June with service readiness to start by the end of the year. So, you know, can they, you know, even though they've, you know, closed some major gaps here, I mean, can they compete with SpaceX and Starlink? 
uh, in this race to help bridge the digital divide. And, you know, I guess my, my, my one concern is, man, there are going to be a lot of, you know, satellites floating up there in low orbit. And, and, and there, there are, you know, there are, you know, you know, folks that are expressing some concerns about that. But, um, but I do believe that satellite is going to be um, a critical element of building out um, a plan that, um, that will scale to support the unconnected in rural parts, you know, all around the world. So um, I was pleased to see OneWeb, you know, um, make some progress this week. And I think it's a good thing. I'll report anecdotally as well. So um, I spent some time with the tractor supply company and um, they are, they're sort of like the Walmart of rural America. They have nearly 2,000 locations, and they happen to be uh, placed in these areas that are underserved. And they've been doing fantastic things with um, creating mesh networks in their parking lots to allow people in these rural areas in the U.S. to be able to come in and do tele telemedicine services, you know, related to COVID and other other things and distance learning that sort of thing. And I actually spoke recently um, with um, their their chief technology officer. And um, they're actually they've got a demo um, piece of equipment um, from SpaceX in one of their uh, remote locations, and they're seeing phenomenal download speeds. And so, um, you know, satellite's going to take a while for you know for it to mature and progress and and really you know provide the the level of performance. But you know, it's sort of like you know if you're on a desert island and you and you haven't had a drink of water you know in, in a year and you're rescued anything's going to satisfy that that quench right and yeah. so it was cool to get a little bit of anecdotal you know side information from from my friends at tractor supply company um, but I'm wondering like what are your thoughts about all of this I think it's important for for Starlink to have some kind of competition yeah um, because if they get too big and you know, too dominant, uh, they won't necessarily be very friendly on price if they don't have to be. Right. Uh, I find that this is kind of the story for a lot of people who have satellite service, you know, prior to what was available with Starlink, all you had was basically HughesNet and you were capped at say 50 gigs per second, 50 gigs a month right. and 20 or 30 megs per second. Yeah. And I don't know what, what Hughes plans to do with OneWeb, but I hope that they use OneWeb to bolster their network mm -hmm. and potentially offer a more competitive and performance offering to what SpaceX is offering through Starlink. Mm -hmm. And hopefully we'll actually get some competition in this space because I think it's sorely needed. Yeah. And hopefully that will be a spark for maybe other companies to join the space or for just more competition in general but my biggest concern is is also that there might be too many sat low earth orbit satellites that might make it really hard for people to do stargazing amongst other things so yeah. we'll, we'll see what happens with all that but uh it, i think it's a net positive especially since one web had been kind of sitting in in mothball yeah. for a bit yeah no i agree and you, you spoke to the performance of HughesNet. Anecdotally, you know, what I'm hearing is up to 10 times the performance of what you just quoted. So, um, you know, your mileage may vary, but, um, but potentially, you know, it's, it's a game changer. So um, we'll definitely keep our eyes and ears open here. Let's hit your third and final topic this week. And you want to talk about a new 6G consortium that's been formed. 
Yeah, so the NSF has created a new 6G consortia, uh, consortium uh, making made up of Apple, Ericsson, Google, IBM, Intel, Microsoft, Nokia, Qualcomm, and VMware, as well as the um, NIST. And basically they created this thing called Rings, which is what is this partnership. Uh, mm -hmm. It's called the Resilient and Intelligent Next Generation Systems Public Sounds Partnership. fancy, like something and, out of like Project Blue Book back in the 70s or something. I mean, <laughs> one, of, one of the number one jobs for these organizations is to think of clever uh, names for their yeah. projects. Uh -huh. But um, what's interesting about it is they are involving the industry early uh, as opposed to late, like they did with 5G. Um, mm -hmm. They're also going to have $40 million in funding set aside for academic research into 6G. Uh, and they're already announcing that they're taking proposals right now. Mm -hmm. So um, I think this is an overall very positive thing because I think the government is being more proactive about future technologies yeah. and involving the companies in the industry that are driving the technology already. Um, so I think it's actually a very positive thing. And, and instead of ever having everybody trying to work is separately and you know, in a silo, I think it's better for us to have a bit more of a collaborative approach. Uh, I would have liked to have seen somebody from the 3GPP being involved, mm -hmm. but to be fair, most of the companies that are involved are also members of the 3GPP. Yeah. Um, but this is mostly focused on the US, um, but as these next G standards are focused globally, hopefully, this will be a group that will take into account and plan ahead just to have some kind of uh, technological advantage in the US mm -hmm. just because the leading companies are working together. And that alone, I think, is, is a big, big part of this push. Yeah, I agree. Um, I would like to see in that, that list of companies, a, a test and measurement company like uh, Aspirin or an NI, um, or a, a key site technologies because that that's also they, they play a very critical role in helping you know helping design and, and test you know these networks. But I'm sure that'll coalesce over time. Um, I will make a plug for my alma mater, uh, the University of Texas at Austin. Um, they are very heavily focused on 6G research, and I expect they will probably be submitting. Um, proposals, um, you know, here as well. But um, I had the opportunity about a year ago to spend time um, with a, with a, with an, an organization that's on the University of Texas campus. They were very, you know, involved in you know massive MIMO and 5G, and they're definitely focused on 6G. So hook them horns. Um, I'll be I'll be interested to to watch you know the next steps here. But my friend, another great week, another great podcast. We've been doing this a year. We should throw ourselves a little celebration after we're done, but why don't you take us home? Absolutely. We hope our viewers and listeners found this week's topics interesting. If anyone out there would like to reach out to us to provide insight on a specific 5G topic for a future podcast, please reach out to us on social media. Will is at Whaletown Tech, and I'm at Anshul Saad. We hope you have a great weekend, and please tune again next week.